It's the middle of summer, and that means there's a whole bunch of fish offshore. As an angler, that means it may be time to go purely vertical. We're going to talk about that and more on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. Of course, we appreciate you doing so every week, and, and, and every week it's brought to us by Sportsman's Warehouse. Visit them in any one of 136 stores nationwide or online at sportsmans.com. Guys, we're starting to face the end of July. It's getting to be uh, hot and kind of dog days feeling of summertime. Uh, here in my home state, we're still getting lots of rain, which is a, a blessing and a rarity at the same time. We don't normally get any kind of major rain around here uh, this time of year, but it's raining. And if you're in the Western United States, it's probably the same for you. But it doesn't change the fact that we've got a lot of fish that are now offshore in Western reservoirs. And all the spawn seasons are over with, all the bait fish have spawned. Uh, this particular year, water levels are high which doesn't really affect this podcast a whole bunch, but it definitely will make uh, where you find your fish offshore a little bit different than maybe previous years. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of fish that are no longer relating to the banks and that are relating to some sort of offshore structure. And this becomes a video game thing at this point in the year, guys. And for this particular podcast, I'm going to talk more about uh, bass and walleyes than probably anything else. Normally, my podcasts are very much uh, as multi-species as I can make them because, first of all, that's what floats my boat as an angler. I like to catch lots of different fish but also because it reaches the widest range of people out there. So I don't typically do a pure bass or a pure walleye or a pure trout podcast very much, uh, or even TV shows for that much in a lot of cases. But in this case, we're going to do one that's really heavily focused on bass and walleyes because all the techniques I want to talk about and the concepts I want to talk about right here are really best suited to those two species of fish. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, I just got back from ICAST about a week ago. ICAST is the International Conference of Allied Sport Fishing Trades. If you listened to my podcast earlier in this week, uh, first I apologize. I didn't do one last Friday. didn't get home in time. Flights were delayed. Uh, did it Monday. But check into that. It was really talking about bait development and, uh, and how that process takes place. But one of the headlines from this year's ICAST was a major emphasis on lures designed for, um, technology designed for, accessories designed for live sonar or forward-facing sonar. You guys may know of it as Active Target or Live Scope or all the different names out there from the different manufacturers. Personally, I use Active Target. Uh, it's a Lawrence product. But a lot of different companies were, were addressing live sonar, either issues or uh, baits or just ways to maximize that. And if you don't have live sonar, make no mistake, this is not going to prevent you from, uh, from dealing with, uh, with all the rest of the concepts throughout this podcast. But I will say there's a big push for live sonar such that my current boat, I have a Ranger Z521R, from the factory comes with live sonar at this point, comes with active target. And so it's getting to be more and more and more mainstream. But again, if you only have basic 2D uh, sonar, the old school sonar, that's fine. You don't 
Don't make it out that I have that you have to have the latest and greatest in sonar for this, but you still have to have some basics understandings of what you're looking at on your sonar, and uh, and more importantly, also either some basic mapping or understanding of really high knowledge of the of the lake bed you're fishing, things like that. For me, it's a combination thereof. Um, I use old school 2D plain old sonar because it does a fantastic job of, of showing me anything that is suspended in the water column. So if it's not on the bottom and not on the surface, traditional old school sonar shows me a lot of stuff. Um, it shows me potentially the size of my fish based on their density, potentially where they are in relation to my boat. Uh, things like that. Then I will use downscan, which is just at a much higher uh, frequency, which means it gives me more detail. That downscan will give me a good idea of what my bottom looks like. Am I fishing over gravel? Am I fishing over rock? Am I fishing over mud? Which I'm almost never fishing over because there's hardly ever fish in mud. But uh, I really will fish over hard bottoms a lot of the cases. And in some cases, it may matter if you're fishing around, say, softball-sized rock or basketball-sized rock, or you know Volkswagen bug-sized rock, which all of which are available to me on my home lake on any given day. Not to mention gravel itself. Also very helpful for finding the edges of anything, any rock transitions, edges of riprap, anything like that. That's what I like my downscan for, which is somewhere around the 455 to 800 kilohertz range, as opposed to say somewhere between 83 and 200 kilohertz on traditional 2D sonar. Then from there, I will also look at my active target, which is live sonar in real time. It may not give me as much detail as to what's going on in terms of the fish in the water column, things like that, as to where they're positioned, but it gives me a chance to see how they react to my lures. And those three things come together to let me be the most effective. But again, if I only had one, if I literally only had one of these to choose, it would be the original 2D sonar because it'll give me enough information out the, about the bottom of the lake to let me get in the ballpark for one. For two, it will definitely do a good job of showing me what's up off the bottom, which is well, most of the fish we're gonna talk about right here. And then for, for three, it's the quickest, easiest, uh, least expensive to use uh, with the least number of limitations to it. So uh, a live target situation can be great, but it will not necessarily give you all the information you need. And that's why I would not choose that one. Same thing with downscan, but I get enough information from 2D sonar. So we're talking about fish that are offshore. They're no longer on the bank. So first of all, let's talk about what structural elements we're, we're looking for right now. And for me, it's the first thing I want to look for is humps. And you have to understand the difference between structure and cover. Structure is the shape of the bottom of the lake, let's just say. It is the actual, uh, the ditches, the humps, the ridges, the, the creek channels, the flats, the, all of those things are the actual structure in the lake. The cover is anything that gives texture to structure. So I might have a hump, but does that hump have brush piles on it? Those brush piles would be cover, not structure. Uh, does it have rocks such that the structural element is the ridge itself, but the broken rock all over it is the cover that the fish and the crayfish are using maybe? 
uh, things like that. So I'm really all about structure this time of year, and that's why I, it's such a sonar-specific thing. In my case, I've lived on this lake for a long time, 20 years. I've seen it empty. It's a 2,000-acre lake, and I've seen it basically empty. So I know uh, exactly what I'm actually fishing over the top of. But my first choice is always going to be humps. And it doesn't matter if I'm on my home lake or some lake in the middle of Kansas. If I know where there's a good hump and I'm fishing July or August, um, particularly early August, I am all over that hump. I'm going to go check it out. The next thing from a hump... Of course, the hump has a great quality because it's surrounded by water deeper than itself. So humps are the first thing I'm going to look at. Second thing I'm going to look at is ridges, which are effectively humps that are surrounded on three sides. So any sort of a long ridge or a peninsula sticking out uh, that's higher than everything around it is going to be a really good call this time of year as well. So that's another thing that I will go look for. Uh, aside from that, I will look at offshore drop-offs. So that may be something like where a flat goes out and then breaks off into deep water. I've got one lake I fish where it's the old lake edge. The lake was, the, the, they raised the height of the dam, made the lake bigger. The old lake edge is a hard drop-off all the way around the lake. It's well offshore. Again, an excellent spot to fish in the summertime. Something like that I will be looking for. I might be looking for channels, uh, creek channels, channel swings, or the old river ledge, very classic one, ledge fishing, anywhere you've got an actual river that was inundated when they built a dam. A river ledge can be an excellent call uh, for bass and walleyes this time of year as well. Uh, another really good one I might be looking for would be, uh, and this is kind of a common thing in certain areas of the country would be flooded stock tanks or small ponds. Um, they call them stock tanks in Texas or here in the West United States, but they're small ponds and they'll typically have a dike uh, at one end of them. Uh, they were typically, obviously they were ponds and so they had other things around them, maybe rock on that dike face to keep it from eroding. And then when they build a reservoir there, it floods that and you get a perfect low spot and a high spot uh, all together and uh, excellent places to fish as well. So those are the kinds of things that I'm going to be looking for at this time of year. Uh, all other things being equal, I want the densest one with the most cover on it. So in my home lake, which is pretty much all rock. It's either rock or gravel, some version of rock or gravel. I don't have any wood cover per se. I don't have you know pole timber or brush piles or anything like that. So I'm fishing rock. As a general rule, um, small to medium-sized rock is my best bet if I'm talking about humps and ridges. Those are That's a very good call as opposed to big giant boulder type rock, uh, which I have as an option, uh, well offshore. I don't do as well on those uh, as I do the big boulders that are up in shallower water that I would consider more of a very early spring as in fish coming to the bank or late spring as in fish leaving the bank. Those boulders are in the great big boulders I'm referencing there are going to be anywhere from about six feet of water out to about 20 feet of water. And those boulders may be six to 12 feet high. Great big giant boulders in the lake. Uh, fantastic for those transition seasons. Not so good for midsummer. I like smaller rock, uh, all other things being equal. Even gravel's not too bad on them. Uh, smaller gravel, maybe golf ball size rock uh, is excellent. Again, your downscan will show you that. Your high frequency downscan will give you a really good idea of what that bottom looks like. And that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for as far as, uh, as, far as the rock goes. 
if I'm at a lake that's got timber, standing timber, then offshore standing timber can be fantastic this time of year. Absolutely fantastic. And I love uh, particularly deep trees. That's more of an Ozarks thing. Uh, where you'll get a you know a, a 30 foot high cedar tree that's completely submerged in around you know 60 feet of water offshore. It's been there for 30 or 40 years, but they don't degrade because they're cedars trees. Um, any of the newer lakes that have freshly inundated stuff can be really good. And in the West here, uh, particularly this year, you're going to see a lot of stuff where at places like Powell or Mead or Blue Mesa here in Colorado, where a whole bunch of terrestrial stuff grew while the lake was very low. Lake Powell's up something like 70 vertical feet. I guarantee you there's stuff that grew in a lot of those canyons that will be relatively significant by this point. Uh, maybe cottonwoods down in the shady parts of the canyon. Um, you know, anything like that. Again, those will inundate as those lakes come up and when they're out in deep water, uh, they're gonna be really good. Let's talk a little bit about water depth. What am I really looking for when I'm talking about deep water? For me here in the West, it's going to be, I'm going to say we're going to start looking in the 15-foot range, uh, and it may go out as deep as 50 or 60 feet. Very commonly, even for smallmouth bass, I will be fishing in the 40 to 55-foot range. Uh, walleyes around my home lake, they tend to get smaller when you catch them deeper, but I've caught them in the 50-foot range as well, and I've caught lots of them in the 35 to 40-foot range. So I would say my sweet spot's gonna be 20 to 40 feet, if that's such a, you know, that's a pretty big range to be a sweet spot, but I would say the 20 to 40-foot range is a really a sweet spot for me, um, particularly at my home lake here, but also all around the West United States whenever we fish. If we've got a canyon-style reservoir, uh, that's going to be a key depth range for me to work in a whole bunch when we start getting to say mid-July through middle of August. That's going to be a key range. So that's something I'm looking at. And that's why the sonar is so important because when you're talking about fishing that much range, you have a major puzzle to figure out. Not only where on the lake are the fish, but where in the water column are the fish as well? And so I keep mentioning humps and I keep referencing humps. They might be sitting right on the top of the hump, as in like I can barely see them on the sonar unit because they're sitting right on the hump. That's more common probably with walleyes, um, but also the smallmouth will do that fairly, fairly commonly as well. They also might be a foot to four feet off the bottom, which is, in my opinion, the easiest fish to catch. Those ones, uh, the ones that are sitting right in the bottom may be in a really crappy mood. They might be negative. Uh, at very least, they're neutral, uh, meaning they're not anxious to bite. Uh, you get ones that are higher in the water column, say they're halfway down, see your hump's 30 feet deep, and, and the, the fish are halfway down or a little more. Well, now they're a long ways from the top and a long ways from the bottom, and depth control to get your lure at that range can be an issue. But if they're within about three or four feet of the bottom, it's pretty easy to keep your bait in front of them. If they're within three or four feet of the top, or five or maybe even ten feet of the top, it's pretty easy to keep your bait in front of them. Uh, obviously, when they're on the bottom, it's very easy. But when they're in that mid-range where it's a little too deep for a jerk bait, uh, not a whole lot of crankbaits will get there, but a jig wants to sink through them or a blade bait wants to go through them, they get to be a little trickier. So I'm going to look for fish, if I can, all other things being equal, in the one to four foot range off of the bottom, if at all possible, whether it be bass or walleyes. Uh, 
again, if they're higher than that in the column, there's a couple things you should consider. One would be trolling, uh, and I'm not a troller. So if you're looking for information on trolling, I am not your guy. I would love to be able to be your all-in-one source, but I'm honest with my listeners and viewers, and I am not a good source for trolling. I'm just good enough to be dangerous with it, but not good enough to really feel like I can accurately teach you anything. I have resources for that. If you have questions, chat at fishfulthinker.com, and I will steer you to the guys that are better trollers than myself. Since I'm not a troller, I have to be very good at depth control and uh, as a casting guy, and so I might accomplish that with a slip bobber, which would be a good a good call because a slip bobber will allow me to suspend a lure or a jig or whatever it might be at whatever depth within the water column I want. So if say my fish are 20 feet down over 40 feet of water, they're a little too deep for a crankbait, they're certainly too deep for a jerkbait, hard to keep anything else in that level in the water column, a jig or a swimbait or anything like that, but a slip bobber, I can do that very easily. Uh, so and since I don't do bait, my slip bobber is going to have gulp on it uh, of some sort. And typically, it's going to have something that's very, very um, supple as far as gulp goes. Something like a gulp leech, where the big, big long leeches are very, very supple, and I'll probably wacky rig them. Or I'll do something like a general, a, a uh, power bait maxent general, which is a Cinco style bait, and I'll wacky rig that thing and hang it under a slipper bob, a slipping, let me try that again, hang it under a slip bobber with a bobber stop above it. Then when the wave action from the boats and things go by, that bait will be jigged slightly up and down from the wave action and the wacky rig will go to work for you or that gulp leech that's stuck through the middle will go to work for you. It will start moving underwater. So that's one way to address fish that are up higher in the column. Another way is to try to draw them to the surface uh, or draw them up in the column with something like a very aggressive, very speedy jerk bait. This is one of my favorite tricks. When the water's clear especially, and I realize my sonar has shown me or my previous experience has shown me that I've got a bunch of fish that are, say, 20, 25 feet down. I can commonly draw them up to within, say, four or five feet of the surface with a very shiny, very fast, uh, very erratic jerkbait. And basically, those suspended fish, they see it between there and the surface. They'll dart up and grab it. And this is a very effective way to catch suspended walleyes. And most guys don't realize that, but it's a very effective way to catch uh, to catch suspended walleye. So that's a good way to keep your to get your fish to bite is to draw them up to your bait. In almost no case can you draw them down. In other words, push something underneath them and get them to feed down. Usually if they're suspended, you need to be at their level or above them. And it may be that you can get them to come up 15 or 20 feet in the water column with a bait that's erratic enough and, and draw or, or curious enough to draw their attention. So another one I might throw in that scenario is a Johnson Sprite or a Johnson Splinter Spoon, either of those in very shiny colors colors because they're going to give off a lot of flash and a lot of vibration and I might either just retrieve it, let it sink, count it down and then retrieve it back or I might work it on a hybrid vertical or stop and go retrieve but if the sun's out and the water's re relatively clear you can do a pretty good job of keeping a spoon in a depth range fairly well.
uh, and that can be excellent for drawing fish up. Again, if I can run that Johnson Sprite, I might even use a great big one, like a three-quarter ounce or a one-ounce spoon. Uh, if you're a hardcore bass guy, you may have seen guys with great big, huge flutter spoons, six, seven, eight-inch long flutter spoons, which, by the way, can be a really good technique as well. Uh, a little bit specialized, which I, so I won't talk too much about it here, but a three-quarter ounce or one-ounce Johnson Sprite is in the, say, three-and-a-half or four-inch range, same size as a lot of the shad in the lake, and I can flutter that along above the fish. I can either keep it moving horizontally, uh, and if you do have live sonar, you can see how deep it is in the water column. Uh, if you don't, it becomes a little bit of count it down and a little bit of touch and go, you know, experience, touchy feely. Uh, can I, you know, how far is this thing really down and trying to get a feel for it over time. Uh, historically, I've said use a metered braid of some sort. In other words, braided line that changes colors like the uh, Fireline Tracer. Um, that will help you a little bit to determine your depth as well. Speaking of depth, there's one key thing I probably should have mentioned a little bit sooner in here, but I'm going to throw it out there now. You have a couple of choices when it comes to offshore fish uh, or summertime fishing that are you know f addressing fish well off the bank. Is do I fish vertically or horizontally? That's a major, major decision branch. Let's say that's a major fork in the tree of decisions right there. All other things being equal, if I can get on top of fish and fish vertically, I can typically catch the most of them. The limitation to that is if the fish are too high in the water column to where they're spooky. And if they're spooky uh, and, you're, and the boat uh, is too close to them, then obviously they're going to move out from under your boat and your vertical presentation is going to go away. Obviously, I can cover more water with a horizontal presentation, something with, with the trolling being the extreme example of that. But the problem with that is if my fish are suspended around, let's say, a hump or a ridge, my lure may only be in the strike zone for a short period of time. And so uh, that can be a limitation there. And science has proven that fish will bite more stuff vertically than they will horizontally. So it's easier to get fish to bite vertically or a completely dead stick. So I'd, I'd really like to find fish that are, say, maybe 15 feet minimum below the surface, and maybe 20 would be better, down to about 40 feet. If I can find a whole bunch of fish or even just a few fish that are 20 to 40 feet down, I can typically camp the boat on top of them or drift over the top of them without the trolling motor on, and I can get a high percentage of them to bite. So that's my perfect scenario. Say fish that are 30 feet deep, I can camp the trolling motor right on top of them, uh, and then I can uh, use my active target on a down-facing mode, and I can keep track of how those fish are responding to my specific bait, and I can get them to bite. Um, if not, if I only have 2D sonar, I will then at least make sure my bait's staying in the right depth range, and hopefully we'll have marked some fish on that spot before I try to fish there in the first place. One thing I'll tell you, I'm old school about staying off of fish a little bit. The first thing I learned when I started using Active Target is that a lot of fish will leave, more than I realized would leave. And there's, it was a time where I would idle over humps my big motor, and I would mark all kinds of fish. I'd drop some waypoints on them. I would turn back around, and I'd go right to them on the trolling motor and, and anchor right on them. 
What I've learned with active target is in a lot of cases, if you do that with the trolling motor on, they leave. And I used to wonder why I couldn't find them again. And I, I always figured it was because they were just barely outside my cone. But what I've learned with, with active target is a bunch of them just leave. So I tried to stay off the trolling motors or not right on top of them, one or the other. So what I will do is go super old school and drop a marker buoy on them. And so when I'm riding around the boat and I idle around over some humps and I mark some fish on the humps because they don't seem to be as afraid of the big motor as you idle over them as they are when you park on top of them with the electric motor. As soon as I see them, I'll drop uh, a buoy back where they are. And that buoy, of course, will let out just enough line to stay right there where it is in the water. And that will let me know where I need to cast back to for those fish. Then I will park the boat a full cast length away from them so that I'm not spooking those fish and make long throws back to them. So that's a really good way to go about it. And if I'm a kayak guy, I'm for sure doing that in a lot of the scenarios. Uh, if I have basic 2D sonar, I'm for sure going to do that in a lot of scenarios as well. But that can be an excellent way to get those offshore fish to be feeling a little bit less pressured. Because keep in mind, by this point in the year, they've been fished for a lot. There's been a bunch of bass tournaments and walleye tournaments on whatever lake it is. And that will typically tune the fish into particularly the trolling motor and also different lure presentations. So you have to be careful with that a little bit. If, if, I, if my fish are shallower than about 20 feet, it's rare that I'm going to try to stay on top of them because it's even more rare that if I can still catch them there. Don't get me wrong. I can catch fish 15 feet down right under my boat, but I can count on one hand how many times they were big fish. And if I'm looking for big fish, I need to typically stay just a little bit off of them unless they're, say, 30 feet or more deep. And then I can, then I can park the boat on them and, and get after them that way. Let's talk about a couple of pre specific presentations because for me, I narrow it down a whole bunch this time of year. And one of them in the last year and a half that's come on strong has been a brand new bait. I talked about a bunch last week on the podcast, but I've been on the test team for it for a long time. So I've been fishing it for a year and that's a new power switch. And it's made by Berkeley. It's made out of power bait and it's basically a hybrid jig. It's an internal jig head that, that in and of itself has not been new it's been around for a long time. In this particular case, they weighted it such that it hangs horizontally in the water column for one. For two, the bottom of it is flat. And so it planes off in different directions as it sinks, um, completely different than just about anything else you would, you would drop down. And then for three, it's got almost no tail to it. So that tail does not impart a swimming action or a flutter action. It just gives it a little bit of subtle movement, which means it's up to me as an angler to make that bait do different things. And I enjoy that, that aspect. Most importantly, uh, it's very durable bait and I can retrieve it quickly and do a lot of things with it. So, which I can do with a lot of other jigs as well. But this thing casts like a mile and it's very durable. I don't have to change it all day. I can fish the same bait all day long. So that can be a really key step. That thing, a hybrid jig, has been uh, very, very good for me, particularly all last summer. In lieu of that, I'm talking about a jig head with a gulp minnow on it or a straight body of some sort. And that's been my number one most effective presentation for my entire adult life. Uh, I go back to that one commonly. Boat is not prepared to fish as far as I'm concerned, unless there's a, a jig rod ready set up with that combo on it. So that's an excellent choice as well. Uh, three or four inch gold minnow on a eighth or quarter ounce jig head 
fantastic offshore bait because again, same as with that power switch, I can do lots of things with it. I can fish it horizontally, vertically, or anywhere in between. Uh, and, and so that's something I will commonly throw. Another thing I'll common th- commonly throw with fish offshore is some sort of a long skinny um, swim bait, like a power swimmer, maybe a 3.3 or a 3.8 inch power swimmer on a jig head. Uh, typically that jig head's going to be a little bit heavier. It's going to be maybe a 3 sixteenths to 5 eighths, um, or, or to half, I should say. And the reason being is that bait's going to displace water when I retrieve it. So in that scenario is where I'm going to stay back off my hump, make a long throw all the way across it, count my bait down to whatever depth the fish are at, and then retrieve it back steady and even. If your fish are feeding, that's about the easiest way to get them to bite. And just retrieve it back. Tip down with the rod and just retrieve it nice and even and give the fish uh, every opportunity to just go up and eat it. And that works really good as well. It's not erratic. It's not fast. It's not crazy. It's just very edible and swimming through the water comp. So that can be a good one. In that scenario, I will steer the bait a lot. In other words, I'll take the, the rod tip, point it all the way to my right, and then swing it all the way to my left without changing my retrieve any. Just keep retrieving it along. And basically, you're just giving it a little subtle S bends as it's retrieving its way through the water column and that can be a really good call along those same lines a spy bait and if you're not familiar with a spy bait it's uh it's basically um like it's got a little prop at each end of the bait and it sinks at different rates berkeley makes one called the spy there's a whole bunch of different companies that make them uh they make them at different sink rates and so again it's similar to the swim bait i throw it out count it down to whatever depth that I want to retrieve it, and then just point the rod and go. Just start winding it back nice and even. Again, a fantastic way to get a lot of bites from suspended fish. The key is the bait needs to be at or above them. Same with the swim bait and same with the jig. Uh, Another really good one besides the spy bait, and incidentally, with the spy bait or the swim bait, the more stuff I try to do with it, the less fish I catch. Just wind it in and you'll be better off. Uh, another bait that I'll throw, I already talked a little bit about, is the spoon. Uh, I love to flutter a shiny spoon. It's a great way to get heavily pressured, pressured fish to bite. A lot of guys associate it with fall and dying bait fish, and that's fine. But in my experience, as soon as there's fish offshore, you can start catching fish with that thing. Uh, and again, I might retrieve it horizontally. I might work it vertically, sitting right on top of the fish, like you would a quote-unquote jigging spoon. But it flutters a lot more. It's got a bunch more uh, surface area for a given weight than a traditional jigging spoon, like a crippled herring or something you might be familiar with. It flutters way slower down through the water column. It flutters real erratically, but it doesn't sink as fast. And that gives it a chance to stay in a higher in the water column for a little bit longer. So that's another excellent bait. And then the last one for me is a drop shot. Uh, I drop shot a ton. It's a great walleye technique. Um, It's a great bass technique. Most people don't think of walleyes uh, on drop shots, but it's a fantastic technique. Uh, And so that's the last one. For me, a drop shot could have a lot of stuff on it. Um, Could be anything from my gulp minnow to a a flatworm, a Maxent flatworm, one of my favorites. Could be, uh, again, a wacky rig, Maxent general, or a little stickworm. Uh, something like that, or a little four-inch power worm. There's just almost anything you could put on a drop shot, which is a great call. Now, let's say some of your offshore fish are tight to the bottom. 
one to four feet from the bottom. Now everything gets easier. All the lures I've mentioned are still in play, uh, except for I can sink them all the way to the bottom and then pick them up and retrieve them from there. And so then I know how close I am to the bottom because I let it go to the bottom and then I could lift it by two feet by watching my rod tip, I know, or whatever the case might be, three feet, one foot, whatever and then retrieve it back. That's really good call. Uh, in the scenario of them being deep enough where I can sit right on top of them, it is very hard to beat a drop shot in combination with some sort of a flutter spoon or a blade bait, like a Berkeley Thin Fisher. A Thin Fisher or a blade bait of some sort is very good at triggering bites. And when they're sitting tight to the bottom, you can put that blade bait all the way in the bottom and rip it up anywhere from, say, a couple inches to four feet and let it flutter back down. And I can do that and get a lot of bites. But while I'm doing that, I will typically dead stick a bait off the other side of the boat, assuming it's legal, check your regs. I have a second rod stamp, it's legal for me. I'll put a drop shot down there and let the sinker stay on the bottom and the drop shot's just off the bottom or the sinker maybe just barely off the bottom and you'll get a lot of fish to bite that way. Uh, you can use the flutter spoon as a way to call fish in, but it's the drop shot that they end up biting when they get there. So in the same way that people will do that with ice fishing holes, we have a hole in one side, a hole in the other. One's got a dead stick bait, one's got an active bait. Uh, and it's usually the active bait that doesn't get as many bites and the dead stick that does, but as soon as you take the active bait away, the dead stick doesn't get bit. So it's what draws the fish in. That can be a good combination here uh, for offshore fish. And then another thing I'll do with some of these baits is work a hybrid retrieve. So I will basically pick the bait up and tight line it back to the bottom, but I'm not, so I'm not straight retrieving it horizontally and I'm not on top of it fishing vertically straight up and down. I'm going to throw past a bait and then, or past a hump or past a, a, a group of fish, whatever the case might be, and then rip it up and let it fall. And that, I, I might do that with my swim bait. I might do that with my flutter spoon. I might do that uh, with a jig or certainly with the power switch, uh, the hybrid jig, anything like that. Uh, I will do, and those, that can be an excellent way as well to get fish to go. And there you're able to kind of hybrid cover a little bit more water. Maybe this is a good technique on a long ridge where you can just line up with the ridge and fish ahead of the boat. Uh, or a large hump where you can sit on one spot and fish all the way around your boat into deeper water. That can be really good as well. But, uh, but long story short, I'm going to focus, can I fish vertical or horizontal uh, or some hybrid thereof? And uh, how close can I keep my boat to my fish? That's my biggest thing. In all of these cases, everything I've mentioned so far, this whole podcast is done on braided line for me. And the reason being is we're talking about a lot of potential for slack line bites. Slackline bites are hard to detect, and also we're talking about baits that fish may or may not hold. For instance, that spoon or that spy bait, they're not going to hold that thing very long. And so it's up to you to feel that it got bit on semi-slack line and, and get a hook set. So the braided line will help you with that. Also, in all cases, it's going to have a fluorocarbon leader on the end of it, somewhere between 12 and 12 inches and, say, 36 inches long. And the reason for that is visibility. Fish are going to get a lot of opportunity to look at the bait in this scenario because we're not moving it a long ways in a hurry. And we're dealing with fish that are midsummer that have been pressured a whole bunch. And that's a key thing there. And also, so the visibility, we don't have to see the line. And then also, uh, if you're jigging something like a blade bait or a spoon, 
it, those the treble hooks will spin around and grab the braided line. And when they do that, they will they will twist up the line, they'll tangle in the line and cause yourself all kinds of frustration. So braided line with a fluorocarbon leader is better in that, in all of the scenarios I mentioned here, and, and that's that. So uh, the last thing I'll throw out there is this time of year, I, I'm, I'm adamant about I don't fish areas normally. I fish spots, not areas. Well, this time of year, I'm really adamant about that. Like I will fish the top of this hump, and then I'm out the door. I'm not fishing all the way around it or whatever the case might be. Whatever my sonar tells me, I'm believing at a high level because I know we get a lot of fish that are grouped up. And anyone that's ever studied bass tournament fishing, you know how ledge fishing, offshore ledge fishing goes. You get a school fired up, you catch a bunch of them, and then they leave. Or you can't find them because they move around and there'll be one big group of fish that moves from spot to spot to spot. That's exactly why I fish spots, not areas, because springtime, you might be able to just spread out down the bank and fish, you know, 500 yards of bank. But in the summertime, when they're grouped up, 495 yards of that's not going to have any fish, and the last five is going to be loaded or whatever the case might be. So I want to fish spots and not areas in all cases at this time of year. So if you guys have further questions, please email me at chat at fishfulthinker.com. Uh, also, you can instant message us on Facebook or Instagram, uh, or message us, I should say, and we'll be glad to check that out. Uh, we really hope you'll check out our YouTube channel. Lots of information on there, at Fishful Thinker, and we put up a couple of videos a week there. Check that out. Uh, and also Facebook, Instagram, at Fishful Thinker on both of those. Uh, World Fishing Network and Altitude Sports, five days a week on both those networks as well. So check us out there. We appreciate you tuning in. This has been Fishful Thinker, the podcast. <laughs>